The following is a sermon from Faith Troy, a church located in Troy, Michigan. For more information and more audio and video content, go to www.faithtroy.org. In the last 30 years, the number of Americans who identify with as no religious affiliation has nearly quadrupled. And for them, it's not an unthoughtful exodus from the, from the faith. In fact, they have thought about it a lot. In fact, it's a, it's a gut-wrenching, heartbreaking, frustrating departure from a religion that for, for them, it just wasn't working. It didn't help. For, for, for them, they, they tried it. They experienced church and Christianity. They experienced religion and faith. And for them, it, it, it hurt more than it helped. It didn't offer anything for their hurts, for their pain, for their brokenness. For them, the church often contributed to their brokenness instead of healed their brokenness. Today we're beginning a new series called For the Broken. And, and, and the church, what we, what we know about being the church, the family of God, is we're all broken. The church is filled with broken people, and broken people often hurt other broken people. And because of that, it can make it incredibly challenging to be the people of the good news. It can be incredibly challenging to be a place of healing when we are all struggling and hurting with brokenness. See, for many, what happens in the church is is the moment we get a glimmer of hope, somebody distracts us from the hope we have with disapproval. The moment we get a a little bit of peace, we hear about another group of people wanting to stir up some controversy. The moment we get a little bit of good news, somebody else reminds us of everything that's wrong. And so it makes it incredibly challenging to have hope and peace and joy. Now to help with some clarity in this series, what you'll find is as we talk about being broken and as we talk about the failures of religion, the way we use that word religion could be a little bit confusing to some of you. Now some of you have zero problem thinking about religion in negative terms. And so this is not clarity for you because you have no problem tracking with what I'm saying. The word religion in a wide sense could be used to define any set of belief and practices. Now, when we use the word religion negatively, what we are talking about is a little bit more narrow of a definition of religion. And that would be when there is a system that defines your your stance in that system based on your behavior. When where you stand is determined based on your ability to keep the rules, follow the rules, do the right things. That's the kind of religion that we are talking about. And that religion fails because what happens when where you stand is determined based on your behavior, whether that's where you stand with God or where you stand with a particularly a particular community, then rule keeping and obedience becomes everything and we miss so many other things. And so this is what we mean when we talk about the brokenness that religion creates because what happens is, is that rule keeping, that focus often hurts more than it helps. It distracts us from the hope, the peace, the forgiveness of Jesus. And the church is full of broken people. And often what we find are these people who have fled and left the church are broken because of the very things that they heard and experienced. They experienced something that gave them religion but failed to give them Jesus. Take Stephanie, for example. Stephanie was a student at Northwestern, and she was interviewed for an article in The Atlantic and made a depressing observation about her experience with Christianity. She actually said the connection between Jesus and a person's life was not 
clear. See, what Stephanie experienced was a version of Christianity, a toxic version, that was all about religion. That, that it was a version of Christianity that her stance with, with her community, with God, was all based on morality. And the way that she followed those rules. And for, for Stephanie, it left her broken. Now, the author of this article described Stephanie's experience, and and the author said she seems to have intuitively understood that the church does not simply exist to address social ills, but to proclaim the teachings of its founder, Jesus Christ, and their relevance to the world. Since Stephanie did not see that connection, she saw little incentive to stay. See, in the midst of her brokenness, her religion failed to help. Because her her religion became irrelevant to her brokenness. Her religion became irrelevant to the brokenness that she saw in the world around us. It often contributed to pain, but didn't help the pain. It it gave the opposite of peace. It caused anxiety. And Stephanie's not alone. See, good news is not what comes to mind when many people think of the church. When many people think of what they have experienced in the church. When many people think of what they have heard about the church. Good news is often the last thing that people think of when they think of Christianity. And it doesn't come to mind because a lot of people don't hear much good in church. They hear what's wrong. They hear their failure. They hear that they're bad, but they don't hear much Good. Now, I believe that, 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 that we want to be a different kind of church, and, that, that, and that's not the things that we hear here. But even in a community like this, even when you say all the right things, what happens is broken people are still broken people. And so still, sometimes we say the wrong things, we do the wrong things, we, mo- we don't model it the way that Jesus models it for us. And so our hope as we talk about this thing and, and what it means to be a part of the church and being a church in the context of being a church in America when there's a lot of different experiences and different things that people hear when they hear the word Christian, that we can help us understand the brokenness, the brokenness of those who follow Jesus and the brokenness of those who have left. Now in the series, there are two main categories that you could fall into as we talk about being broken. And so on one hand, there's those who are broken by the church. It's those who who have experienced some kind of hurt, pain, because of what they experienced from another Christian, because of what they experienced sitting in a church, because of, of the teachings that they've experienced. And so for those broken by the church, what we believe is that Jesus wants to heal the damage that's been done. He wants to care for you in ways that you never thought were, were possible. And probably ways that you certainly didn't expect would happen in a church after what happened in a church. And he might not even be the one you're looking for. And this might not even be the place that you were hoping to hear it. But he has something to offer. Now the other category of those broken would be what I would describe as the religious offenders. And now that sounds a little bit harsh. But I would categorize myself in one of those. And those are for broken people that are apart of the church, that we still believe, we still trust, we still follow Jesus, yet our own brokenness comes out in the in the way it hurts. Because hurt people often hurt other people. Now, some of us are ignorant of our own brokenness. We don't realize that we're broken. We don't realize our own failure. We, we often even, if that's, and if that's you, if, if you don't realize it, well, often it, it's happened is because, is because we distract ourselves with our own goodness. 
Right? We distract ourselves by the good things we're doing, by the self-righteousness we have. That, that makes us fail to realize our own brokenness. Now, some of us, though, are also desperately aware of our brokenness. We know that we've hurt others. We know that we've said things that we shouldn't have said. Some of us are afraid of what would happen if people found out how broken we are. If people knew how we hurt others. And others of us are so haunted by our own sin and failure that we are so desperate that we know the only place that we can turn is to Jesus. Because we can't fix what's broken in ourselves. See, it doesn't matter whether you've been hurt or hurt another. The reality is that religion has failed you. It has failed to give you what you need. It has left you broken. Both of you. And Jesus has something better to offer. If you could turn in your Bibles to the book of Luke, chapter 10. If you're using the Bibles in front of you, it's on page 1612. Now in Luke, chapter 10, Jesus tells a story a story known as the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, what's important about this story is I believe that we have missed the point of the story of the Good Samaritan. And, and because what, what happens over, over, the, over the thousands of years since Jesus told this story is we have begun to think about certain words in different ways. We use the word Samaritan. We'll name hospitals after Samaritans and organizations after Samaritans. But in Jesus' day, the word Samaritan didn't mean what it means today. We've turned the word Samaritan into a synonym for being kind, being charitable, being generous. When in reality, that word Samaritan, it was more closely associated with vitriol and anger and hatred. And so for us, this story has become a story about the principles of better generosity. When in reality, Jesus told this story and it had an edge to it. There was a scandal to it. It was was shocking to religious people. Not only because of their failures, but because of the hero in the story. Now the whole story begins in Luke chapter 10, when an expert in the law asked Jesus a question. In verse 25 it says, On one occasion an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now when you hear expert in the law, think not lawyer expert, but think like religious expert. He's an expert in the teachings of the Old Testament. He studies the law, he studies the Torah, he knows his Bible well. And so he asked this question, and the text tells us it was to test Jesus. Verse 26, Jesus responds, well, what is written in the law? In other words, you're the expert, you tell me. He replied, how do you read it? The expert answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, well, good job. You're the expert. You got the answer right. You, you answered correctly. And Jesus replied, do this and you'll live. And then verse 29 says, but he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now, it's interesting that there is a switch now in the tone of the questions of the religious expert because it started he was trying to test Jesus but in this next verse when he asks the follow-up question it says he's trying to justify himself which means he's experiencing what we we experience as a little bit of guilt he he knows the answer but then when he says well love your neighbor as yourself he's like all right now I gotta make some excuses because I don't really do that the way I'm supposed to Jesus says do this and you'll live and I'm like I love some people but maybe not all of the people and so this self-justifying question makes him ask well who really is my neighbor and so then that launches Jesus into a story 
And this story not only challenges the audience and who the audience considered to be their neighbor, but it also challenges some preconceived ideas about what goodness look like, looks like. And it simultaneously takes to task the failures of religion. See, in the story of the Good Samaritan, what happens is religious people do what religious people often do. The religious people hurt more than they help. The religious people are focused on their goodness and ignore the hurts of somebody else. They ignore the pain. They just keep it out of their mind. And so Jesus tells the story, and it begins in verse 30. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. Now, we'll pause there for a second. You know, what's interesting about the story that Jesus tells, he's referring to an actual location. Now, often when Jesus is telling the stories, you can't really point to a, a, an actual place. But in this context, it's an actual place. You can actually walk the road between Jerusalem and Jericho. And so Jesus is referring to a place that, that, that the religious expert knows where Jesus is talking about. And so when Jesus says a man is walking down this road, the person, the people, anybody who listens to this story in the day of Jesus knows that this is a dangerous road. There's lots of places for robbers to hide. This is, you know, when you walk on this road that it's dangerous, that there's, that there's plenty of spots to hide. A robbery is likely to happen. And so you're cautious. And so it's not surprising for a man to be on this road, to be beat up on this road. Now, in this case, when Jesus tells the story, this robbery nearly becomes a homicide, when it says they stripped him of his clothes, they beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. No, even this, though, is not quite surprising. This is what you'd expect. This has happened. This is probably not the first time that something like this would happen. They're probably very familiar with this kind of event. Now, what's also interesting, though, in the story that Jesus tells is not just the details that Jesus includes, but it's also the details Jesus leaves out. We don't ever actually find out who the man on the side of the road is. He's on the verge of death. He's beaten to a pulp. He's unlikely to survive. But Jesus doesn't say who he is. We, he, Jesus didn't fill us in on his religious background. We don't know his nation of origin. We didn't learn if he was a nice guy or if he had a checkered past. We don't know if he was a Pharisee. Was he, was he a priest? Was he a Roman? See, for Jesus, the background of the guy who gets robbed is irrelevant. It doesn't matter. And for the religious leaders who were about to read about, they would have had no way to know. Because when he's beaten to a pulp, when he's on the verge of death, they couldn't recognize his nationality. He's covered in blood. And the rose, which might give away which part of town he comes from, they're ripped to shreds. And so Jesus tells the story, and there's no way of knowing who the man was who's on the side of the road. And then two religious leaders encounter that same beaten up, bloodied mess of a man. And so it tells us in verse 31, a priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. Now there's a bit of irony going on here that we might miss, because we think of road in the, in the way that we experience roads. And so you think of a road, you think of a highway and lanes, and all right, here's one side of the road, here's the other side of the road. Now the irony here is that this is an 18-mile trek between Jerusalem and Jericho, and it's more of a trail than a road. And so when Jesus says the man passed by on the other side, the irony here is there is no other side. 
In fact, there are actually parts of this trail, because you can walk it today, there are parts of the trail that are so narrow that for a priest to walk by the the dying man, he would have had to literally step over the body. Like, it's not like he's at a distance, like barely getting a look. No, he's up close and personal, and he knows he needs to get by quick to avoid the blood, the mess, the smell. And so the religious leaders step over the body. It tells us so too, a Levite. When he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. So again, same thing. The Levite walks by and he steps over the body. And I, I, I can't help but wonder. Like when the Levite comes to the man who's on the side of the road, like there's 18 miles. And so how far ahead was the priest? Like, did the Levite come to the, to come to the body, and he's like, oh, well, the priest is up there, and he just walked by, so I have all the justification I need. Because, right, he's a Christian, he probably did the right thing, and so if he didn't help, why should I? If he's following God, and he did that, well, then certainly that's what I'm supposed to do. And so the Levite, too, also passed right by. Now, when we read this story in the 21st century, what we scoff at is the failure of the religious leaders. We, we, and we think about this story as a story of the hypocrisy and the failure of the religious leaders. And there is some hypocrisy, but, but what it reveals ab- about the failure of religion is far worse. See, the story is not just about the hypocrisy of religious leaders. It's about a failure of religion. Because for the priest and the Levite... When Jesus tells the story at this point, people still aren't surprised. The religious expert is not surprised that the priest walked by. The religious expert is not surprised that the Levite walked by. Because for them, their religion has taught them that where they stand with God is is based on are they clean or unclean. And what will a dead body do to that cleanliness? And so for them... The way that they determine where they stand with God is more about avoiding the man on the road than helping. And so the priest and the Levite did exactly what was expected. They walked right by. They offered some thoughts and prayers and went on their way. Trying to get it out of their mind and feeling like they did the right thing. Thinking that they were faithful thinking that they were doing what God wanted, leaving the man there, though, on the side of the road. See, this is worse than just ignoring the person on the side of the road on your way to church. The failure of religion is far greater than that. It's not just hypocrisy. It's about a religious commitment to the wrong thing. It's about a religious commitment do the wrong thing. It's somebody, when they're desperate for hope and they come to you and you simply remind them of what's wrong with them. It, it's for you when, when what's more important to you is proving that you're right than maintaining any set of, sense of relationship. It's when that person comes to you and they're guilty and they've screwed up and they dropped the ball and you just really want to make sure they really are guilty. Like, do they really feel bad enough? And so instead, you try to make sure that they know the, the hurt that they've caused instead of simply responding with grace and forgiveness. See, what the priest and the Levite do is they fail to do anything to help. 
And I can't help but like wonder, like when they walk by, how long did it take for them to forget? Like how far on that 18-mile journey do they have to get away to get that blood out of their mind? Like when, when the, the, in, in the words of the song that we sang during offering, out of sight, out of mind, if no one speaks, I'll be fine. Like, is, like I feel like that's what they would have been feeling. Like, because there's no way they didn't see it. And so, well, if only I can get it out of sight, out of mind. If only I can I forget about it, move on to something more important, then I'll be okay. If only I can forget the blood, then, then we'll be fine. Just don't remind me. Don't make me think about it. Now, I say all this, this is not to beat up religious people. In fact, I, I am one, right? I'm a professional at being a part of, of religion, so, so I get it. Or this is not about religious, beating up religious people, but this is about bringing some things into sight. Because if you are somebody who feels like you've been broken, if you feel like you're, you're a person who's been left for dead, a part of healing is bringing into sight the failures of religion of bringing that into our sight, acknowledging that, because where we bring it into sight, there can be healing that takes place. And for those who have caused hurt, for those who have contributed to brokenness, either in things we have directly said or by neglecting the broken, it's only by bringing those things into sight that we can experience redemption and forgiveness. We have to bring them into sight because we have to be able to be honest about those failures in order to have healing and forgiveness for those failures. See, in the day of Jesus, what's interesting is the priest and the Levite would have typically been Sadducees. Now, Sadducees in the day of Jesus were actually a very popular group. We often think of the Pharisees as the people who get it wrong and as the hypocrites and, and as the one who Jesus goes up against and challenges their way of thinking. But the Sadducees are also a group, in fact, larger than the Pharisees. And in Jesus' day, it's actually the Sadducees who were the strict rule followers, and they were literalists when it came to interpreting the, the first five books of the Old Testament. And so when it comes to understanding the Levitical laws, it was the Sadducees who were the literalists who didn't have any room for wavering, while the Pharisees would have had some debate and dialogue and un- trying to understand how do we, with wisdom, understand what God intends. And so you'll see this with Pharisees, you'll see this in the way that Jesus even models some debates about the Sabbath. Jesus and the religious leaders, they're debating about it, right? There's some other rules that some rabbis come up with, and Jesus debates against that. Now the Sadducees, for them, it was very much, what does it say? Word for word, there is no room for error. And so when a Sadducee reads a text like Leviticus 21 verse 1, and it says, a priest must not make himself ceremonially unclean for any of his people who die... That is why the priest and the Levite walk by. Because the Bible tells them. And so they walk by. Because for them, where they stand is based on, did they do that? Because if the body dies, because an almost dead body is not far away from becoming an actual dead body, and if it becomes an actual dead body, they are ceremonially unclean. And in fact, if they are, and and they're priests, and so it actually even impacts their calling, their responsibility. And so for them, well, I'm supposed, like, I, I can't, I can't help. And see, for them, what was more important was where they stand was based on their behavior than anything else. And so that shaped the way they treated 
the person who was broken. They had to pass by because stopping and helping the man wasn't an option. There's no, it's not kosher to recreate a weekend at Bernie's on the way home from priestly duties, right? That's not, Leviticus doesn't allow for that. And so when Jesus tells this part of the story to the religious leader, everything that we've heard so far is not surprising. Now, the, now the religious leader, he, he might have been a Pharisee, and so if that's the case, he probably didn't like it. In fact, he probably didn't even agree with it because he would, he would want to have more dialogue and understanding of, all right, well, how do we interpret this in, in, in context of how we love other people? But it's not surprising. And I think that's part of what makes this so important for us today in our day and age because religious people saying one thing and doing an, another, that's not surprising to us. And it hurts, but it's not surprising. But when religion neglects the broken, and when religion neglects the broken, and they think they're doing all the right things, that's a different kind of hurt. That's a different kind of pain. In the story of the Good Samaritan, the official representatives of God were better representatives of abandonment than atonement. And for some of you who are here, you might be here, and some, maybe somebody invited you here, or maybe you've been here, and this has been a struggle for you, that you've done the church thing, and there's hurt, and there's pain. And for some of you, it might be because what you've experienced is you felt like you were left. That nobody knows the real story. That they don't know the hurt. You, that you feel more abandoned than loved. And so in the story of this failed religion, possibly your story echoes that of the man on the side of the road who's robbed and left for dead and abandoned. Who's had life and joy robbed. Who has found himself on the side of the road, desperate, struggling to take a breath, covered in blood, and no one's there to help. No one hears, no one knows, no one's helping. Now, that's not the end of the story, though. Jesus continues, and it's in what comes next in the story that surprises everyone. Verse 33, but a Samaritan. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, then... He put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. See, the plot twist in the storyline of this story is in the words, but a Samaritan. It's those words that shock the expert. It's those words that would shock anybody who read this text in Jesus' day because the road was expected to be dangerous. The religious leaders were expected to have other things to do. The religious leaders were even expected to, for the sake of behavior, leave the man on the side of the road. But a Samaritan, nothing about the Samaritan's response makes sense. Nothing about the Samaritan's response is expected. Nothing about the Samaritan is what people thought would happen in this story. 
the Samaritan, was the least likely hero of the story. The religious people in Jesus' day hated Samaritans. Their doctrine wasn't pure enough. They didn't use the right words. They were from the wrong side of town, and Jesus knew it. Jesus knew that about Samaritans, and he intentionally chose to tell the story with the people that no one expected to be the heroes. The rescuer isn't who the religious people wanted to be the hero of the story. He's not the person anyone listening to this story would expect to show up. And depending on who that half-dead person is, it might not even be the hero the person dying wanted to show up. See, for some of you, you feel like you've been broken. And some of you may not be expecting Jesus to be the one who helps. In fact, some of you may not even want Jesus to be the thing that actually helps. But that doesn't stop Jesus from doing what Jesus does. And so this Samaritan comes and he shows up. Even though the religious people have left him for dead, the the Samaritan comes and undoes the damage that's been done. He was robbed, he was left for dead and abandoned. But now, this unexpected hero reverses the actions of the thieves and the religious leaders. If you notice the progression of the story, what you'll find is everything that happened to the man who's on the side of the road dying gets undone. Every part of the story. And so he's robbed. And he's left for dead and abandoned. And each of those things get undone by the Samaritan. And so where he was robbed, when everything was taken from him, all his money, all his livelihood, the Samaritan comes and he pays back what's been taken from him. And he goes above and beyond by paying for his healing, by paying for the inn. Where he was left for dead, he is actually given new life. He has almost a resurrection of sorts. He was about to die, and yet he continues to live. And where the man on the side of the road was left all alone, the Samaritan is present. When everybody else walked by and abandoned him, the the, the Samaritan gets down and picks him up and is there with him and travels the journey with him. And not only that, he goes to the inn. And then when he leaves the inn, paying the price, he leaves and says, I'll be back. He doesn't leave him, abandoned And alone, he comes back to make sure he is healed. Now, what's amazing about this is the risk and the foolishness of the Samaritan who helps. Like, it does not make sense. See, there wouldn't have been an inn in the middle of nowhere. On this 18-mile journey between Jerusalem and Jericho, it's not like, oh, there just happens to be an inn next to this spot on the trail. That's that's not where the inns are. See, an inn would have, would have likely been in Jericho. Jericho is a, Jerusalem, uh, a Jewish town. And so think about the significance of then you have a Samaritan who is hated by the Jews going into Jericho, a Jewish town where nobody likes you. Add to that that you're walking in with a nearly dead body with no evidence that you are not responsible for the crime that made this body nearly dead. So the Samaritan goes into a town where he is hated, where he is despised, walks into the town with a broken and beat up and bloody person, risking being implicated in a crime he didn't commit. He then pays the price at the end so this man, who he doesn't know, can get better. And then he not only leaves, but he says, I'm going to come back to that town to make sure he's really good. To risk once again 
being hurt himself. See, the Samaritan not only makes up for the Levite and the priest, but he undoes the damage of the robbers. Despite the risk, despite the cost, despite the effort, the, the Samaritan displays an unexpected love to somebody who desperately needs it. He undoes the damage of the robbers and the neglect of the religious leaders. He undoes it all. That there was nothing done to that man on the side of the road that didn't get undone by the Samaritan. Robert Capon, who is an Episcopalian priest, described this story very well when he said it this way. He said, the gospel says clearly that we can be saved only by bad examples. By the stupid example of a Samaritan who spends his livelihood on a loser and by the horrible example of a savior who, in an excruciating death, lays down his life for his friends. See, there's a reason why Jesus makes the hero of the story the person that no one would resonate with. Jesus doesn't want the religious leaders to see themselves as a Samaritan. And Jesus doesn't want this to become a parable about what they should do. Jesus wants the parable to be about the unexpected, unconditional love of somebody who is completely unlike them. You are not the good Samaritan. And that's good news. Now you, you might be one of the religious guys who did nothing, who walked by offering thoughts and prayers but didn't help. You might, you might be one of the religious people who neglected the needs of the broken. That, that could be you. And you might even, or you might be the religious expert who's trying to justify your own, own actions and ask the question. Or you might be the half-dead struggling victim who can barely figure out how to go another day. But the one person in the story that none of us are, you're not the Good Samaritan. Jesus is the Good Samaritan. Jesus, who gives his life for losers. Jesus, who gets implicated in a crime he wasn't guilty of. Jesus, who finds himself attacked while trying to protect the life of others. Jesus is the true good Samaritan. And just like people hated the Samaritans, they hated Jesus too. In fact, the book of Isaiah, which which was written hundreds of years before Jesus was ever born, wrote in words that could describe the Samaritans. Words that describe Jesus when it says, And he was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Jesus was hated, he was rejected, yet Jesus paid back the price. The price for our own sins that have robbed us of life and joy. He paid back the cost of the damage of the sins that have been done to you. He undoes the damage of the guilt, of the shame, of the fear that you have been trapped in. He undoes the consequence of your own sin. Jesus undid every ounce of pain and brokenness with his own brokenness. Jesus on the cross undoes what's been done to us and what we have done ourselves. Isaiah continues. He says, Surely he had borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. 
In other words, the, the, the grief and the pain that you experience because of how you have hurt others and the grief and the sorrow because of what you have experienced. Jesus carries those griefs and sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. And he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. See, I don't know how you've been broken. And I don't know what has robbed your life of joy and peace. I don't know if they're your sins or the sins of others, but what I do know is that we are all broken. And that Jesus, in his death and resurrection, that his wounds heal ours. See, maybe for you the brokenness is because of what someone said or did. When Jesus comes and finds you struggling to continue, Jesus undoes what was said or what was done. And he says something better. He does something different. He says he loves. He says he forgives. He says he won't leave. When you've been overwhelmed with the weight of your own sin, Jesus comes and undoes your sin with forgiveness. See, it doesn't matter how many times you've left Jesus or given up on the church. Jesus isn't leaving you. Jesus won't abandon you. When Jesus finds you bloodied and bruised and broken, he gets down and picks you up. He carries you to the inn. He pours out some oil and wine, and he brings healing. Whatever the hurt, In whatever ways religion has failed you, Jesus rescues you. Jesus sees the exhaustion, the damage, and he promises to give you something better. He's come for you. He's come for me. And he does what the psalmist describes when he says he binds up your wounds. Jesus heals every wound. every hurt and every sin. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we come before you as broken people. And as broken people, we pray that you heal our brokenness. For the brokenness in us that often hurts others, that sometimes hurts others in the things that we have said and done, and sometimes just hurts others because we don't do anything. Jesus, we pray that you would forgive us, that you would have mercy on us, that you would heal our own brokenness. And Jesus, for those of us who have been hurt by the church, by religion, by Christians, by all of it, Jesus, we pray that you would undo the things that have been done, that your life And that your words would counteract the lies that they've been told. That your own wounds would fight against the abuse and the hurt and the pain. And that they would and that you would heal in ways that they never even thought possible. Jesus, we pray that you do what only you can do, that with your grace and with your love and your mercy, you would heal the broken, that you would bind up 
our wounds. In your name we pray. Amen.